Your name's not Dan, you're not coming in. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Raw, the 90s rave podcast. Just a little pre-warning, this episode does contain language and themes which some of you may find offensive or upsetting. But ultimately, we hope you enjoy it. Cheers. So as we enter this uh, third and final part of the uh, MC Majika interview, I want to talk to him about, about, about his promotion, his media, and a bit more about you know the scene split and what he's up to these days. Um, so, G, you were, as you've, you've, we've said, you're an artist, but also a promoter as well. Um, what is What makes a good rave f- when you're a promoter? And also, what makes a good promoter? Good rave is a busy one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. True. True. Uh, um, lots of things, man. Listen, I I was always in, involved in promotions. When I before I became known as Majika, I, I told you I did a rave called Illusion before the Illusion that became a prominence in Stoke on Trent. Many years later, I did a, a series of raves in around ninety one to ninety two called Illusion in Birmingham. So I had a little taste. Then I did. Then I came along with Cocoon later on uh, in, in 96, which went horribly wrong because we got the whole mixer on. We did Happy Hardcore and Old School, and the two just didn't mix. Right. And it's really funny because the people I was working with uh, was Jez Bailey from Quest. And I really believe, I really do, that we would have been what Flashback went on to become because Flashback was a small little club in a club called The Attic in Hockley in Birmingham for about 150 people. And, but it was it was bubbling, it was busy, you know? And it was nice when you went there because we started that little resurgence of old school. And we did Cocoon and it, we had a we had the old school and the hardcore and it just didn't work, man. The hardcore didn't go old school, the old school didn't want for the happy hardcore. And we tried two of them. It, what we should have done was just all old school. And I really believe Cocoon would have been flashback. It would have been because it was there first before that came along. And then Jez hopped onto flashback talked to him because he was a big promoter. If he saw a small little fledgling little promoter, he could bring them in and go, right, I'm going to put you on a bigger platform, just like an artist uh, as a promoter would do. And Flashback was born. But I was born uh, in musically in terms of the racing around a lot of promoters. So I've got to see a lot of things. I was actively involved in the background and behind the scenes and seeing and seeing the dynamics and promotion and artwork and visuality and stuff like that. And I always, and, I, and the business model, and I always thought, you know, I would like to, to do stuff. So, you know, um, I started getting into promotions very early on back in, so when I moved back to Birmingham in 2000 from London, I uh, franchised One Nation. I did two massive shows with One Nation. Did the Helter Skelter show, did a uh, True Players show, Ganja Crew with Hype, Zinc and Pascal. <clears throat> um so I did, a, I did a prototype night with Groove Ride. Actually, the prototype night didn't happen. Uh, so I had a, a, a death in the family and um, uh, I couldn't, couldn't do it. But uh, there was there was a, a lot of nights that we did. Uh, and then I was involved in Legends of the Dark Black, which was uh, designed and uh, put together by Ish Ali from the Central Festival from Brighton. And I brought that to Birmingham. I did some huge shows with Goldie and Andy C and Ronnie Size and all kinds of stuff uh, with them. With, um, with the Legends of the Dark Black. And then uh, with my family uh, and my partner, we came up with um, uh, Raveology and we, we launched Raveology in uh, 2003, small little brand that was, there was no plan for it to become big. It was just like a little old school gathering in a suburb of Birmingham, not even in the city centre, in an area called Kingsdorn, Lakeside Country Club. And we had like Rat Pack on and a few other people and stuff like that. And it went for the roof and the second one went for the roof. And then I got a phone call, infamous phone calls uh, from Air, uh, Air Nightclub, which was called Code, owned by the, the, the God's Kitchen Global Gathering guys. And uh, they said, listen, do you want to do like an old school night? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did Raveology. We had Raveology downstairs and we had Legends of the Dark Black upstairs. Legends of the Dark Black was in a small room, but the room held about 450. There was about 500 in there. The Raveology room was all right. It was all right. It was about 300 in there. And it was the big, 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 big room. Could hold about 750. And then did the second one. The first one had a lot of baby D and stuff like that. And then the second one, uh, we had liquid on. And then someone said to me, listen, it's about bums on seats. Why don't you just swap them over? 
Drummer based downstairs and that upstairs. And we did, we never looked back. Raveology was born and, and it became synonymous. And I made it look very catchy, engaged with the people. We had a, a very well-known artist called Hoaxer, graffiti artist. Um, and he draw, he did hand-drawed uh, all the artists and we did loads of themes and stuff. And so the visual aspect looked good. The production was good. Uh, we caught the imagination of the people at the right time and it became sort of like it was almost like um there was a brand a clothing brand called fubu and it was for you know it was for black people it was like for you by you and it was like a for it was like a birmingham moment of fubu this was for them by then you know it was me from birmingham and i did it for birmingham but people came from surrounding areas and counties and, and cities and um but it just became very successful. And then we, we outgrew air. We started to do other venues around the, the, the city, hosting loads of arenas, hosting Slamming Vinyl in EC, you know, festivals in Wales, had a terrace at Global Gathering, loads and loads of stuff. Had an album released by Virgin. So much stuff. And then, then what's the, what's the, the best What's the best event you've ever put on and why? I think the biggest one historically was the Drum and Bass Awards 2009. Uh, 6,000 people, Custard Factory, live on Radio 101 Extra, written about in the national tabloids, featured on Central News. That was the whole part of what I did. It was that media reaching out, getting the biggest model, flag-flying thing for music. And it was no bigger thing to do on the Drum and Bass Awards. I even had the city of Birmingham and the council acknowledge it. And put, like, you know, when you come into a city and they've got like a, 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 a major sporting event and they'll, they'll dress up the city, they dressed up the city for us. That was mad for a rave, for a rave event. Uh, and that was the, that's where I was at. That's the networking levels I was at, sitting with, you know, councillors and, 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 and mayors and in town hall in the middle of Birmingham, talking about why this event is good, why it's so relevant, why the, it's great for the tourism and the promotion of the city. There was so much I was doing. There's so much, uh, which I don't think people take note for. Um, <clears throat> so that, that became really successful. The awards is still alive and well today. I went on to do, Bassman's and Trigger's birthday bashes for a period of time. Um, uh, and I still work with brands today. I work with relevant brands like Bass Layers uh, and TNA uh, and stuff like that. So there's lots and lots of stuff. I'm still very, very proactive. One of the things is I keep my feet to the ground. I keep moving. I keep working. Isn't that tenacity? Try to deliver a good show. When you get a busy show, it's it's really good. People remember. They always remember the good things, right? I had I had the bad the bad time as well. I think it was around 2014. The bubble burst, and it burst really bad. Tom burst really bad. And um, you know, I've got to say, lost probably about probably lost about in that period of 2014 to 2016 because I was so driven on trying to stay in it. Um, I didn't really think of the consequences. I should have just backed off. And I probably lost about 75k during that time. Oh dear. Um, and, um, got, which was, we've got the we've got anyone who's listening on audio. We've got the donate button here above the uh, or uh, the address for to, to donate. Maybe it should be for you instead. G, <laughs> give your money to G. Lost seventy five grand in twenty fourteen. Christ, what does that? <laughs> how do you feel? How do you feel when you lose you, when you lose seventy five thousand pounds, which is enough for a deposit on a flipping house? Listen, it was it was a big thing, but there was there was money accumulated as well. So let's not forget that. But you know, but that was all used for positive things and stuff. For I live and etc etc but um um it was a horrible hurtful thing you know and, and there was a lot of self-addressing a lot of things there was the climate there was all sorts of stuff had to go for go on just being honest me as a person etc etc lots and lots of things contributing factors not just one so just had to address a lot of things then take a back seat then I began to um uh, uh I began to train a lot with my martial arts uh really driven in that Started teaching around 2017, gone on to become a two-time black belt, opened up martial arts schools. I work with West Midlands Police on working with um, impact areas, in areas that are impacted from crime and, and, and not much opportunities and poor social upbringing. Well, so is, is promoting and emceeing, I know obviously no one's emceeing at the moment, but uh, pre-coronavirus, no one's promoting either, but uh, they're starting to at least. Um, is that a job or is it? A hobby, or is it um, a bit of a to, mix? To, 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 yeah, to me, it's a bit of a it's a, it's, it, it's a mix, but it's I don't want to contradict myself. Yeah, it is a mix. It's definitely a mix, but it's um it's much more so a hobby. 
And it's more, it's more that, fun. That gives, you, that gives you some money. Yeah. And yeah. of course, but it's more fun now. It's right. fun. Because I pick and choose what I want to do. I work with some credible people. Like I said, I'm working with, I've got my own brand. I do the drum and bass awards. I've got, I work with um, a real huge festival operator. I want to give him a shout, Dave Lee. Uh, from We Are Festival. He, he, he runs a huge festival in London and he's behind me on the awards. So that shows you where I'm at. I've, I've got some good people around, but I've worked my, my arse off to get there. Um, and I've, I've, I've got some good brands that I've, I've built up um, uh, uh, along the way. Um, and we're still here doing it. And like, like I said, I've got base layers who are huge for the younger generation and they're working with me. So it keeps me proactive rather than the old school stuff. Then I've got TNA, I'm working with them. I've got Conganati, I'm doing the official night for Conganati. He loves working with me. I love Rebel MC. Um, and then, you know, and then I'm doing the Quest and Amazon thing, which is a completely different thing from the younger generation to the older generation, which is on this summer as well, here in Birmingham in September uh, at Lab 11. And we've got the, the who's who of jungle. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a great lineup. Matt, it's a great lineup. And I'm, you... uh, I'm proactive. And that's the, that's the thing, you know, it's, it's I, I love it. And I'm passionate, and then I get to perform, so I get yeah. gigs. I mean, that's I mean, that's handy. Yeah. <laughs> that's a handy part of promoting, so, isn't it? Well, I, I, I love to One go guaranteed out. booking. I love to go out and gig. Well, no, not even just those gigs. I gig. I at one point I didn't even gig on my shows, Tom. Like the early radiologists, you wouldn't see me on the mic. I just completely veered away. And I remember being in Ibiza and fearless and basement being on the mic, and fearless actually saying to me, "Why aren't you touching the mic? I don't understand it." And to be honest with you. I lost confidence because I hadn't done it. I wasn't doing it, and it had to be right. And I was out of it a little bit. You know what I mean? And um, then I soon, I soon found my way. It's like a bike. I got, just got well, back on the bike. Gabe, um, I think it might be Dave Grundy here. Uh, asks as a promoter of raves, and thank you, he says, for putting on some great nights. You could have made yourself a great name like other big promoters, but you chose to MC and continued to, even when you knew you weren't necessarily everybody's. Uh, favorite. That's the polite way of saying. He's saying, you know, a popular choice. He says, "Why? Because it's obviously that you, you know, it's obvious that you've had a lot of negativity towards you through the MCing, which Look, you could have just not done." Yeah, but when I'm getting gigs and I was performing, and I'm going, "Here's a difference." People said they didn't like me. I heard it, but I was walking out on stage on that weekend to four or five thousand people, going mental. Did I get attacked? No. Did I get anything at me? No. Did I get another booking? Yeah. Did I get a lot of adoration? Yeah. So let's look at the facts. I was getting work and I still get work today. I'm playing at the Resurrection Festival. I'm playing at the Reminisce one in Liverpool. I'm doing the Rave 90s thing up in Scotland. I'm playing on a mission, you know, in Southampton. I'm out there gigging, man. You know, I, I, I do stuff. So. Well, in, in terms of you having something thrown at you on stage, not literally. Um, you've been promoting from or involved in promotion way back into the mid-90s and you were involved with Vibalite. Uh, we got there eventually. Um, lots of people want your version of the events mentioned by uh, Gary Jack in the interview that we did. Gary said he stopped using you after an incident of racism, uh, which he said you stopped to rave over, but that was the culmination of many things which he says uh, were based around you being difficult to work with. The floor is yours. Um, okay. Um, I'm here to celebrate this music that I love and this scene rather than mudslinging matches. We've talked about experiences. One thing I, I noticed from Gary's, and he said it on multiple occasions, grievances. He used the word grievances. Oh, yeah, people have passed away. People have done this. But let's say about grievances. Blah, 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 grievances, da, 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 grievances. And it's not what I'm about. I'm not here to badmouth him at all. I've got my opinions of people, 100%. But you don't need to badmouth him, but I'm interested to know your take on what happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting that he said, we've lost too many people, got to bring it together. But then he calls me a twat. How, how noble was that? It pleased him and he's little click around him and it make them happy and people out there because if it reads it bleeds people people love all this all this stuff they're just they're just but there's other people that don't 
but there's a lot of people that do. And um, so, what, ha could... what what happened on that well, night on that so, final? Because so, he's got one version of events, and I'm sure that you've got another. So, what happened? We'll, we'll talk about. We'll talk about. I want to talk about that incident. I want to talk about Vardla as well. Um, that for me, he said it was the icing on the cake or the catalyst. Maybe so, but when I knew Vibelite, I knew two people. I knew Martin and his brother. Martin was business partner of Gary and Martin's brother. I didn't know Gary. Gary came into the picture a little bit later. I never got to gel with him like I did with Martin. Martin became my friend and Martin's still my friend today. And when he said, oh, there was other things, Let's just get to those few little things because it was interesting he said that because I'm going to tell you the real. And the real was Martin became my friend. And Martin used to say to me, he used to live with his sister, and he used to say, listen, if you ever want to come up to mine, mate, and chill out, just come up. And I'd go up there. I was a late teenager. And I was like, it was like living with a student, Tom. So I'd drink out all of – and he's going to laugh at this, Martin is – I'd drink out all of Martin's orange juice and, and stuff like that and, and, and not replace it, yeah? And um, is it the end of the world? No. But it became a problem for Gary. He didn't really gel with me. Sometimes just the look of a person makes you not like them. He, he didn't like me. We didn't connect. Then there was little reasons he was picking up on. Them. Those were some of them because I remember the conversations. Um, is that really a big excuse to not like someone? He had his own reasons. So that, that was that. He didn't like that. Um, and it's funny, pre-COVID, I took uh, Martin out for a curry and I paid for it to make up for all the orange juice that I drank. <laughs> so um, so um, we didn't have a connection. And uh, whilst we was, um, were talking about the incident at Skegness, he didn't really tell you the full truth. I even spoke to one of the original team members of, 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 uh, of, of um, Viable Art Mongoose from Sheffield, who I'm still friends with. And he was at that particular event as well. And um, I was at that show and I was young and I was on the stage and I came off the stage and I was walking through the crowd. And I remember it clear, clear as that. And I had people coming up to me, shaking my hand, and I'm shaking their hands. And then I come across this guy. And he looked at me and I, he put his hand out and I went to shake it. And he went, who do you think you fucking are? And I went, what? You think you're fucking all that? Fucking packy, packy, and I was like, and he then I had long hair, <laughs> I'm not gonna do that. And he, Tom, he grabbed my hair from the back, and I kid you not, mate, I actually thought something serious was gonna happen to me because of the weight and pressure he put on at the back of me. I did not know how to fight or handle myself. We flew into the wall, and according to two eyewitnesses, my head smashed into his face and his nose apparently exploded. I didn't see that because as soon as he let go, I ran. Now, someone put on the post that you put the other day, how come he used to get slapped around? I have never been attacked at a rave apart from this incident. I've never been slapped about. I've been abused, yes, uh, verbally. I've never had. Um, and it wasn't that common to my face. It was always a little incident here and there with the verbal stuff. But it happened, nonetheless, and it still had an impact. But I was never attacked or slapped around by like one said, and this is what I'm saying. It's easy to write these things. I'm really, what are these people writing? And look how they're making me perceive, perceive to be. Um, this guy did this word for word. And uh, I went up onto the stage. Again, anger, adrenaline. And I told everybody, 
Now, at the time, everybody made noise for me, and and it wasn't like a hoo-ha, and everybody went the opposite. Was it the right thing to do? No. Gary Jakes openly talks about his sexuality. Would he, I'm just saying, for the people watching, not you, would he or people begrudge him if he was abused about his sexuality and he went on his own event and took it to the mic? Would they be grudging? Some might say he shouldn't have done that. Most will say fair play and look out for him. What if it was today and I was black and I was called the N-word? Yes, it was now and that was then. But that's what happened to me. He didn't tell you what, what, he, what happened. He just told you his opinion. But that's coming from a man that didn't like me as a person. And it's easy for him to come on the camera and say, that was the catalyst and he's just a twat. Me and him did not get on. That's what the reality should have been. So right. after that, what was, what was the reaction to the crowd when you did that? Fine. There was no issues. Nobody made a hoo-ha or anything like that. It was just like, because the way I went up, Tom, it was all about rave is about love, people coming together. We're all one. That was my message. And that's what they reciprocated to and responded to. And, and in terms of Gary, how Gary responded when you were no longer used, what what happened next after the night? Uh, or, even, well, or even maybe that night, I don't know. You know, what, well, what, what, what was the conversation that went on between you? Well, what happened was... Gary had the power and he used his power because what happened was Martin came out of the equation. He didn't want to be a business partner anymore because it was just too much for him. And he had a very successful furniture uh, uh, company. Soon as Martin came out the picture, that was it. That was it. And I noticed I wasn't on the next flyer. Tried to have a talk with him. And even when I had the talk with him, you know when you know. This person, he, he enjoyed the moment. He did. He liked that fact that he was in control and I was there more or less begging to try and sort things out. Uh, and that's how he perceived that. And that was it. And one of the things when we worked together, um, even me and Mongoose, because we, we, people don't know this story. Vibalite came about. Martin and Gary had money. Me and Mongoose didn't. 93, early 93, the conversation started to happen. And what happened was, was um, Gary really wanted to put a rave on and Martin wanted to do it as well because they just loved it. There was a big void missing in that area. Venue 44 was a very famous place. I was a resident MC there for a company called Zest. And um, that's how I got to meet them when they started coming to raves and we started talking. Um, and Vibe Light came about, they wanted to put a rave on. And the concept that they presented was um, a concept called rhubarb in a shape of a capsule, which was a, a, a pill at the time on the rave scene. And knowing that there was a historical uh, um, situation with the venue and drugs and raids and the police, I said to Gary, do you really want to call a rave rhubarb in the shape of a capsule? He showed me the flyer that he had drawn. I said, I know you're into, because he was, he was a raver at heart. He took all the gear, he openly said it. He was a raver, mate, off his face, in the rave's gone. And I thought, do you really want to call a rave in the shape of a pill? That's not healthy. Mongoose had a concept, Vibalite from Vitalite, from the margarine. And I said to him, Give it to them, man. They'll do it. We ain't going to do it. And he was reluctant. I talked him into doing it. He passed on that. This is what Gary doesn't tell people. He shies away from that. He doesn't tell people. He only, he, there was a magazine interview that came up, Ralph E.P. Uh, for Eternity. And when he brought it up, I said to Ralph, I goes, mate, that's not the truth. And then it, it, he mentioned it a little bit. But the brand was passed over to him. The, the original margarine top, you know, all the, 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 the everything was, was all passed to him from Mongoose. Then I helped talk to and mediate with the agents and some of the talent and stuff. So they had a sort of like a front point. We were fronting 
the thing. So we put the whole thing together. Now, one of the, the parts of the journey, there was obviously certain artists that I didn't see eye to eye with. We never told them, and Mongoose, we never told them not to book these artists because it was just something you didn't do. You didn't take food off people's tables. And they said to us, oh, it's a loyalty. We don't want to do that because we, you're our boys. As soon as uh, uh, Martin leaves, he gets rid of me because it was his opening to do so. He got rid of me. He books those artists, those very same artists, straight away. It was just, it was just there. I said to Goose very shortly, and Goose said to me, I'll be next. Two or three events down the line, Mongoose was gone as well. Same thing there. Mongoose had a couple of people inside, so I, they were straight on the bill. This was very malicious. And I'm just telling you how it was. He hasn't told people the full. We didn't see eye to eye at the beginning. He brought that into play. When he could do something about it, he used it. The fact that he said to me, I did what I did was wrong, was out of order. You cannot live in my shoes, my friend, and tell me that you wouldn't react like that. I was attacked for the origin of my skin tone and violently attacked. I didn't attack anybody. I didn't swear at anyone. I was just walking through a crowd, shaking people's hands. And when I came to this guy who ran for his life at the rave, and the sad thing as well after that was, because I love Pleasure Dome, it was a big part of my career. And another one, God rest his soul, Bogey, and Gary, who I still speak to. Bogey used the excuse to safeguard his promoting name. He was off his face and, and fully charged and came into an event. Everybody knows I don't take gear. That was sad. That was sad. So all these things I've had to reminisce and bring out, that, that's where I leave it. Whether people want to take what they want from it, they can. But I've told you gospel and the truth. That's what happened between me and Gary Jackson Firebolite. I've told you how Firebolite was born, which he doesn't tell people, and how it was created and how it was started. And then I've told you what happened in the midst of it. And then the racist thing. He will never know what it's like. And like I said before at the start of this, if he was called something regarding his sexuality and he took it out like I did, would he be begrudged? I think not. I think it was very sad for him to come out. And you know what? Even his business partner messaged me and said, in one breath, he said he watched the whole thing on here. In one breath, he's talking about people coming together. And then he said that, and I was really surprised. And I said, and I think we'll leave it at that. Well, there you go. So that is Majika's side of the story. And of course, there are two sides to every story. And the truth, as they say, is out there. But it sounds like you've had quite a lot of racist abuse over the years in raves. Did it get worse as the 90s went on? If so, why do you think that is? And how many times do you think you've been actually genuinely racially abused verbally in, in a rave? I think uh, it all comes down to geographical locations, education, culture in those areas. So I'll give you an example. I went to Skegness. Uh, it was one of my early bookings. And I pulled up at a, a, a chip shop just to get some food. Um, not far from the venue. Two of my friends were Asian. The first thing the lady said to us, really nicely, love what, what are you doing here? And I was like, what? She goes, please be careful, you'll get, you'll get hurt. They're horrible here. They, they don't know how to deal with, 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 with ethnics and, and people like yourself. And, um, and then hence that, you know, the, the situation that happened to me at that venue. And that happens in, in a lot of Northern places, there was a lot of racism, more I found up north, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, I noticed it I noticed it when I was at Club Kinetic. Sometimes when I came out, they used to congregate in the car park. And I, I never used to inter integrate with people and, and, and sort of interact with people. So I'd just get off in my car and go home. But I got into that stage. Let's chill out with everyone. And some of the stuff that was said in the comments, I was like, wow. There was, you could see the education and the mindset. And some of these places, you know, EDL, National Front, BMP, so prominent, it's, you know, untrue. It's what they, what's what they've grown up with, and we're the, we're the, we're the enemy. Um, but being called a packy, uh, I couldn't even count, mate. It happened a lot. And let's take it away from there. Some of the bullying I saw. I remember coming out. I won't say the artist's name. Hardcore DJ, Caucasian, and came out, and it was at a rave, and someone had scraped into the side of his door. You faggot. This is the type of people we get 
you get horrible people in places. So you've got your lovely stories, but you've got people who've got really bad, bad energy. And we get that in life. But I was called it a lot. Um, I had some some hairy moments. I was, thank God, I was, I was, it only happened once where I was attacked. And have things improved now? 100%, mate. Listen, I, I don't walk around thinking I'm a bad man because I'm not. I can look after myself, 100%. But I'm not, I'm not a bad man. But you know what? People don't come to me with that type of stuff. I don't get no racial stuff. I don't see, I see it online from cowards. I've seen a few comments and things. I've seen that. But they're, they're very quick and flippant to, to write whatever. Uh, but I've never, I've never um, had anything sort of racial other than that. I saw some stuff online, which was sad, not long ago. You know, oh, blah, 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 go back to where you came from. And I was like, really? But that's just some idiot who's, you know, and everyone will agree that's an idiot. Um, but uh, not anymore, not in the rave scene, not from, not from people visually in front of you in your face that were brazen back in them days, and, and, and especially up north. They were, pardon me, I've just had some food. <laughs> they were very quick in, in saying, you know, what they felt. And and that's, you know, when you look at it from a sort of educational uh, standpoint and, and a real mindset, where do they come from? What was that borough or area like? What's the constituency there? Who do they follow? What's the social upbringing? And then when you look at it, it's you can see what it is. And it's a very sort of racist-led area that they've been brought up in, into. And that's what they're accustomed to. Uh, and that's the type of profile person that you'd come across. And it would happen a lot. Is it acceptable? Hell no. Was it fun? Hell no. Did I did did it did it did it did it did it worry me? Hell yes. Did it scare me at times? Hell yes. Did it put me off? Didn't never put me off. Made me sad. Made me sad that I came from a school where I was historically racially abused and then still had to put up with that for some years as a young man in an industry that I joined and started, which was full of peace and love and everybody coming together, no matter what colour, creed, gender, whatever, sexuality, they didn't care. They came together and you were embraced. And um, and that's where we're at today. And long may that continue. I, I never want to see anyone go through some of the stuff that I went through. It's not a nice place. It, the loneliness is the killer. <laughs> We really hope you're enjoying yet another one of Raw's in-depth interviews about the rave scene, which we are proud to say are now all curated into the British Library Sound Archive. All of us here at Raw HQ love how much you love what we do, and your generous one-off donations have been a huge help in covering our initial costs. But we're now a team of five, putting in a combined 80 hours a week for no wages, with big plans to expand further, and so our costs are going up. As such, we could really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing, as you've seen us do since our launch in July 2020. First up, go and check out our brand new website. It's rawuk.com, where you can find loads of cool extra content, and you can grab Raw's first ever range of merchandise. That's rawuk.com for our new flashy website. We've also launched a new membership scheme where you can support us financially to create more content on an ongoing basis for less than the price of an oat milk cappuccino. Plus, you get great perks in return. Head to patreon.com forward slash raw UK pods. That's patreon.com forward slash raw UK pods to see exactly what's on offer. You can also join our YouTube membership, which is basically the same. Uh, or if you're not asked about a membership, but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or a repeat donation, then head to our website and click the PayPal link. A reminder of that new website URL yet again, rawuk.com. Big love and respect to you all. Please keep supporting us. Hope you enjoy the rest of the app. I want to talk to you about the famous scene split that happened in the mid-90s because you were a man who was doing, you know, it was all one thing and you were very, you know, you had the talent, you had people like you, you were a hype man. Uh, a theme in this podcast has been that scene split and I'm always interested to get the take of everyone who lived through it and you clearly did. How did you view what happened in the 90s, in the mid-90s that led to that split? Um. When the split came into fruition, it was, I think it was kind of, just, yeah, it just changed the landscape of everything. It changed the landscape of how events were, it changed the demographic of the type of people that went, because you had sort of your hardcore, which had this fluffy boot audience, and it was very sort of drug-driven, and then you had sort of your jungle crowd, and it brought out your, your ghetto, and the ghetto came with different attributes and different tempor uh, uh, temperaments and attitudes, 
uh, and, and different people. Um, you know, they weren't as euphoric and fluffy boot as the hardcore lot. So you had different people, different environments, uh, different settings, different mood swings. Um, yeah, it, was, it became segregated and it wasn't, it wasn't itself. And when he went to certain events like Skelter, it was nice to have the fusion. But even then that became separate because you'd be in sort of the sanctuary at Helter Skelter and you'd have, say, Dougal on. And next door would have, say, Ray Keith on. The next minute you'd have a, 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 a swap uh, of, of DJs in both rooms. A hardcore could go on in the drum and bass room when the drum, where the drum and bass DJ was and vice versa. And all of a sudden, I'd be on the mic, like coming on, coming in into the end of Mickey Finn. And then all of a sudden, yeah, Dougal, boom, everyone gone. <laughs> that's not that we should point out that's nothing to do with Dougal. <laughs> no. Well, I, I was in, in on it as well, mate. So, <laughs> so uh, they've all gone. And then you see all these people coming in. And I was just like, wow, this is where we're at now. And that's just evolution. Well, Time uh, changes everything. Being a hype man, you can MC to a host of styles. Um, was that helpful for straddling the splitting scene for a bit? Um, well, I was I was okay for me because I was adaptable. I was adaptable, and when I moved over into DMV, um, it had its challenges, but I did really well considering. I went in, I got taken on by one of the biggest agents in the world. Just for me, just to be on there with Fabio Groovider, blah, 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 was great. Later on down the line, some years later, I joined Unique, which was Andy C, Hype, Edward Optical, GQ, and I was on there just to be on their adverts and see Majika. That was a testament to playing at all the big raves, World Dance, uh, One Nation, Innovation. Uh, I, I was doing my thing, you know, playing on V nights, movement nights, all sorts of drum and bass things going on, tours. Um, it was it was it was symbolic and, and a testament to where where I was with my ability. And even in 2000, uh, 1997, I came in the top four in the Kiss FM Dance Awards. And for me to be British Asian from Birmingham, coming from Harcourt into DB, and sitting just behind MCMC, GQ, and Stevie Hyper D, that was huge for me because of where I'd come from and what I'd done and what I'd achieved. And for me to be there, even just for that one year. Well, I mean, even regardless of any of that, I mean, to, to come forth to those guys is pretty good anyway. Um, MCMC... Yeah, but, but, it, but in my circumstances, it was very of course, special. Of yeah. course, of course. Uh, but but even on its own, it's still pretty special. Um, yeah. But the MCMC said in the interview that we did with him, and if you if you haven't listened to that, by the way, uh, at home, it's well worth going and listening to. It's one of the, one of the most interesting interviews that we've done, I think. Um, and he says that... Eventually, it got to the point where it just wasn't possible. Now, he's adaptable because he is a an adaptable MC. And actually, some people say he's better on hardcore than he was to, um, to, to, to Jungle. But he wouldn't think that. He really loved the Jungle. But he said it just became too hard. It, it, he had to make a choice, and he did so. And he went down that route. Uh, did you – I mean, I know you're adaptable. He's adaptable too. Did you have to make that choice? What, or, or are you more adaptable than MCMC? No, I'm just – listen, it was – it's all about the person. And for me, I loved the atmosphere and the euphoria of Happy Arkle and the raves. For me, I think the music should have stayed on the level of what, what Slipmat did with the Slipmat dogs, the SMDs. <laughs> After that, some of the music was just, just, just crap, man. Yeah. It was just, it was horrible. Yeah. And I remember going to Radio 1 sitting with my peers and people I look up to and, and being in a room with Pete Tong where he was just, just dissing it. And there was a reason why he was dissing it because he wasn't just being horrible and vile. He talked about certain good tunes. He talked about the SMD stuff and stuff like that and the breakbeat stuff. And, but he talked about where it had gone and where it was going, this wishy-washy ice cream van type music and cartoon led thing. And it was just like, there was no credibility. He said there was no soul in it. It was just like soulless. And and listen, there's going to be thousands out there that will say, listen, but we love that. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. That's fine. You love that. And I get it. But I didn't. I lost love for it. It was musically, it didn't have musicality. And there was me as a young man going, I want a life in music. 
mm. a life in music, and I don't see a life in this. Did you express uh, to anybody uh, who was creating this sound that uh, it's probably not the one, guys? I, mate, don't, I mean, but but it did go for a bit. It went big, mate, but then it obviously you know didn't. Mate, but there was conversations, mate. There was conversations, and you know, there was conversations uh, about stuff, but they led that area. They dictated what would happen, and and they did it for so long. And then when they tried to, certain people used to splinter off, and you had like Chris Brown, Eruption, United Dance, hooking up with Slipmat and coming out with the word full beat and stuff. It was too late. Then you had Billy Bunter and other people doing all the trance stuff, and some of the stuff was was really progressive, man. That was that had some serious body to it, and there was people doing that, but they didn't get the props. They couldn't come together. They couldn't come together. And there was people out there doing the wishy-washy stuff. And then you had people coming out there doing 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 the um, uh, uh, the good stuff. And it, it just the good stuff just got out way with the bad. And it was I didn't see having much longevity at all. And when it did have a little revival, because it was a revival right about two thousand and six, the hardcore thing, especially in Birmingham. I remember going down to where HDID queues around the block. There was a resurgence. It was, uh, but it's, it's neither here or there now. It's like a specialist sound for me. If you get like events like Westfest, all the thousands of hardcore people will come there, and there will be a huge room for happy hardcore in the main room. But you don't get that happening all over the place with events like it was. And that's down to the music. There's some great music out there, but I think it was too late. I think the damage was done. That's just mm. my opinion. And I think there's a lot of people who will, will agree. But there's a lot of people who had a lot of fun with that sound as well. You know, I respect them all, but for me, there was no longevity. No. Um, and uh, did it come to the point? What, what what was that point? Was there a single moment where you're like, mm, no, not for me, can't do this. I'm going to go down the uh, the breakbeat, the, the drum and bass, the jungle. Route. Yeah, yeah, just sort of like um, 98, 99, it was time to, to start chipping, to start chipping. And... And I was doing well, you see. I was I was getting a lot of work abroad, so I was very very busy, and I networked a lot of promoters, and I was very busy. I mean, it was one point where I, I wasn't at Helter Skelter for a whole year, and I was away. Every time the Helter Skelter came, I was away, and I was away most weekends. I was literally going trotting all over the place, and I was I was very lucky, very very lucky uh, to, to to have done that. So it, it came at the right point, and then also I got into the hosting circuit. So I was getting a lot of work and I enjoyed the hosting circuit because I enjoyed hosting. I enjoyed different settings and different people and different artists. And I, I enjoyed the trimmings because some of the events were so corporate led. The way we were looked after was just, you know, you would you would never knock it. And so I had things to replace it with. Um, and I did. And, then I, and I was happy in doing so. So I, I didn't miss it as much. It was easier to, to go because I had stuff to go to. I would have gone anyway. But I couldn't hang around with something I didn't enjoy because it was. So, so was it choosing to go down the drum and bass in the old school breakbeat route? Was um, I know he didn't like the sound that was being created in terms of the four beat and happy hardcore towards the end of the nineties. Was it just luck that you didn't like it, or was it also a bit of judgment there where you thought, "I think this has not got longevity, so I'm going to go with this one"? And 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 actually, that has proven to be the case. I think it was a mishmash of everything. It was everything amalgamated into one. Everything you just said, everything was there. And and it was just, and everything led to that point where it was like, I was I was the guy who was leading that forefront of hardcore MCs. I remember Storm being in a magazine and saying, listen, we'd like Majika around and stuff. I feel like I'm just banging my head up against a brick wall. Because he felt like that at the time. Because me and Sticksman and a few other people, we were, we were the guys who were gunning out there, working really hard. Um, so we were there, the forefront of it, and we left it at that stage. It wasn't like I dipped away. Um, we, we were there still, and uh, it was just something I had to do, and I'm glad I, I did it. I did a couple of reunion sets uh, for HDID, and they were fun. They were fun, but it was a couple of one-offs, and, uh, and it was great. People going crazy, and it was nice to go out there because it's where I came from, you know, and it was nice to do but it was just a couple of one-offs here and there, you know, it wasn't. And I did it for Dougal at um, Westfest. He was doing a celebration of 25 years of Dougal and he, he contacted me. He said, listen, would you come on in, in, in my set? 
and I was brought out on stage by Wizkid and it was a great response and I, I did it for, for Roots because I, I do like to go back and, and, and remember but I've, I've had my fiddle for that now, I've, I've, I've done my, my thing with it and, uh, and and I moved on and I moved on really well and gracefully and it was good, it was hard at times but I did it, I did it. Uh, James Honey asks, uh, as a host MC back in the early 90s, how did it feel when the host started turning into lyricists, potentially leaving the old school style behind? He says, granted, both have got a place now. However, the spotlight was certainly directed at lyrics rather than the odd whistle crew, how you feeling type vibe. Did you feel you had to keep up and, and did you ever attempt to change your style? Yeah, listen, man, I started to sort of drive a little bit. At one point I was living in London. And I was living around a community, and in that community, in that bubble, with a friend of mine called Little Joe, was a very, uh, a very, uh, was an MC who, uh, who became a bit of a superstar later on, called Shabba. And Shabba was, he had that youthful flair, and you could see how why he was going to be successful. And I saw that flair in that place. And I remember coming back to Birmingham, and I did a flashback, and I went up, and I was in a different, I was in a different lane. I could feel it because I, I had a taste of the flair and the rolling tongue and so I could drop it when I needed to do it. I'd more prefer the hosting because mm. it's it's me. And, mm. uh, you know, and yeah, listen, you know, people loved Hyper D. I remember watching Hyper D at this eight, under 18s and I watched him and, mate, it was like he had, like, fish gills. It just geezer didn't breathe. This geezer, it was like non-stop. At one point I was like, and God rest his soul, I was like, this is too much. But it wasn't for the crowd. They were absolutely mental, mental for him. And it was just non-stop. And that, was become, that became part of the culture that Skibidi's come through and stuff. In, like a, in, a, way, in a way, there's... Um... I'm not. I'm not comparing you to Stevie Hyper D, by the way. But in a way, that there is something about that that, like, ultimately, if it might seem too much, but actually, if you're in the crowd and you're lost in the moment there's a parallel there with you. You know, it's like a lot of people listen on tape packs and be like, nah, not really, don't really like that. He's annoying. Whereas actually, I think if you're people, you know, a lot of the messages we've had, people who used to go raving to you and they'll say, well, actually, you did do a job. That was the whole point of it. And and I don't know, I, I wonder if there's something there. It's like, actually, unless you're there in the moment, it's difficult to to, to Yeah, judge. listen, if you're not there, then you're going to have a different perception of it. It's going to, the, the, the audio side is going to be very different to the live side. Not always. Sometimes you can get it on the live side. Like if I, like a GQ set is a GQ set, it's just vintage. But sometimes it can be different. Like you said, you're completely right, two different parallels. And, and, and it can be that way. Um, if you haven't been there, then you, you, you don't know. But if you was in there, then you'll have a different perspective and you'll come away and go, listen, it might not be my cup of tea, but you know what? The place rocked. Hmm. Well, we, we we spoke to Ribs uh, a little while ago. And again, if you haven't heard that interview, it's lovely. Go and go and listen to that interview. And, and Ribs, I think, is fantastic on, uh, on drum and bass and jungle, but he doesn't do it anymore. And he says the reason is he just doesn't have that voice. He's, you know, he feels like he's not authentic and so he doesn't do it. And I think that's a shame. But I wonder, you know, because you're not a, a sort of, I mean, I, I said, look, GQ isn't a lyricist and he he's a host and he he's still big in the scene. Um, but he was like, no, I just don't have that voice. I, do you ever feel that yourself? Or do you think that you've got a, a valid no, place? I, I think, listen, on the right thing, I sit on it. If it's going to, listen, I've been on some of my ravology stuff. I've been on jump pop sets and you just have to blend in. And you've got to find a way, and a pro will find a way to, to blend in and keep things moving. And as long as I keep things moving and the flow's there and there's consistency, then you can jump. Because some of them kids, they just want it for on. And they, they, they'll even look at you until you to go on. But a pro will work the way. And I, 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 I blend. I do my thing. I just go in there, and, and I've got that ability. And listen, if I didn't have that ability now after 30 years, there's something wrong with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair point. Uh, you probably wouldn't be working. Um, uh, finally, before I end this little section and then we, we wrap things up by sort of taking a little uh, retrospective look back at, at, at the last 30 years, uh, the scene splitting and hardcore died. I mean, it did. I know you said it had a resurgence in 2006, but at the end of the 90s, it died. Why? Um, music. Who was, who, who, and who, well, okay, in that case, who who do you blame? Who or what do you blame for that? can't really blame, I don't want to blame people because that's a big thing to put on and I wouldn't do that. Um, there's producers... You don't necessarily have to name them. I, I I mean, I suspect that we all we can all sort of guess because it was the people that were on the lineups, but but you don't have to name people specifically. But but but, but what what happened? What, what, what In your view, who or what was it that, that led to that death? Certain DJs and producers 
uh, uh, produce a sound that didn't have any longevity in it and wasn't going to be credible in the end. And uh, and I think people grew out of it. People grew out of it, and, and other areas became strengthened and stronger. And and it happens. It happens. Look at the evolution of the whole dance thing. Things come. Things go. Drum and bass has always been middle of the road. It will dip, then all of a sudden, bang! The community and culture of drum and bass is just is just epic. And look what it's done worldwide. Uh, the rest of the things, they just they're, unfortunately they're fads and phases, and they're fashion. And fashion comes and goes. Do you know what I'm saying? So that's what I put down to that. And you know, and unfortunately, there's there's victims of that, and that's what happened with that scene. It burst its bubble, and then, it, as I said, it came back and had its little resurgence for a little while. And then it'll still have its little pop-up windows. So you've got Westfest. The room will be packed and you'll get a storm up there rocking out the place and whisking and stuff, uh, you know. Uh, but then you won't see that regular. You won't well, see Gary, that. Ga Gary alluded to a thing. He he felt that there was um, uh, that certain people were being booked on lineups and lineups were too stale. That was And it became part of like, you know, right, we're doing this. But the problem is no new talent comes through and that therefore leads to a death and never inevitable yeah. death. They left it too late. They should have championed new talent. New right. talent in the drum and bass scene has been championed and they come through. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, and they weren't doing that. And there was people who, who had a stronghold on that scene and they kept it that way. And they should have brought through. And there was lots of prolific people. I remember, for example, I'm going to mention it. DJ Moss, M-O-double-Z. Absolutely fantastic engineer. Great tunes. All the hardcore people played his tune but he could not get the breakthrough. I was there when he got a message from Ixie saying, I've heard you're going to quit. Don't quit, mate. We're going to back you. And he didn't get the support from people that he needed. And he was one of many. There was many like him, many. And if they'd had the support, you know, and even other people that were doing the sort of trans course, they should have moved with it, progressed with it, grown with it, but they didn't come together. They became islands. They fragmented, became the Ice Age, bang, smashed up, cracked open, became little little countries and little islands and tried to do their own thing and and the separation began. That's quite a nice analogy. You can tell you were well-educated at school, G. It's about a pressure. It's about a roar. So, uh, MC Majika, as we wrap up this interview, take a little look back at, uh, by talking about what's going on now, obviously COVID has had a major impact. I know it's not your full-time job, but um, how has life for you as a promoter, as an artist, a performer, uh, been impacted by COVID? Well, it wasn't my pro 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 primary income. So uh, I've, I teach martial arts primarily to children and adults. So I'm very lucky uh, because of the way I teach and the model I teach and the support I get, which is massive. Um, I retain a lot of a lot of, of my students. So we train on Zoom all the way through, uh, and it's been fantastic. And I've been doing lots of things to engage with that. So I've carried on doing a lot of that work, and I'm going to be opening as soon as COVID clears off. I'm going to be opening up my own academy, and as I and I love martial arts, and I love the, the I love helping people. I love helping people grow. I love helping kids with anti-bullying. It's very close to home with me. I, I, we're partnered with Princess Diana's Diana Award. So it's a very, very special place with working on that side. Regarding promotions and events, I've kept our platforms and social platforms uh, very busy. Uh, and I've been getting quite a little bit of help. I've got a bigger uh, Cherie Leon. She's the uh, other half of Skibbity. They just had a kid not long ago. And Cherie's awesome on social media. She's been giving me some help. We've been keeping the social media just ticking because I've got a, I can't sit still. All right, you can see me now, I'm just moving around. So I'm, I'm proactive because um, we kept all the, the rave stuff. I've got events backlogged from 29 to 2020 that are, are moving forward now. So we've got shows that are going to be happening. I only do about that many shows a year. I'm not into the rap race. I just do what I like, uh, a handful of shows, just keep myself busy, keep myself out there. So it hasn't really impacted me because it wasn't my primary. Well, what uh, about the buzz? Listen, man, love the buzz. Just... I love being engaged. I love music. Uh, it will be with me for until I physically can't do it anymore. And that's what that well, that's what will happen with me. The day I, I won't get to a position where I did before, where I, it was about chasing the queen's head and the rat race and stuff like that. So that time when the bubble burst and I started to um, throw money at something that was just not happening, that will never happen again. I do stuff that I know is going to definitely work. It's more fun. It's much more relaxed and get the right deals and just do the events 
make your money, and it's fantastic. And, you know, I will never go down that route again of, of, of that type of loss ever again in my life. It will never happen. No, it's um, prob pr probably sensible. Um, Graham Roberts asks, <laughs> what what does Majika think a post-pandemic rave looks like? Uh, he also says there's lots of online interest in a big rave, but do you believe that's going to translate into ticket sales? Um, I think... Um, a pandemic rave in terms of what online or uh, no a post a post pandemic oh. rave. So when we come out of this, what are what is the rave scene going to look like? What is a rave going to look like in the post pandemic world? Yeah, we don't know what that's going to look like. We hope we know what it's going to look like, but listen, we're going to find out. Is there going to be restrictions? Are they going to put restrictions on venues? Are they going to reduce capacities? They're saying June twenty first. I want to lift lift everything. Let's see if we get there. Obviously, if that happens. Then we're going to see carnage and we're going to see this herd, herd immunity thing being put in place and you're going to see people um, getting together and probably catching the virus left, right and centre. Uh, and that's just me being honest, um, especially in the in indoor uh, domain. Um, so if they lift that on June the 21st, I see that they'll, personally, I think there'll be some kind of restrictions still in terms of capacities and then they'll, they'll increase it. I think personally, it'll be sensible for them to do the, the vaccine passport into the hospitality sector because I think it will reassure people as well. Um, so I think that's going to happen. I, see, I think it's too early to say because we haven't seen enough yet. We're going to see things. Things are going to come and things are going to be put in place and happen. And it's only then that we can we can step over and the hurdles. And will do you think oh, raves yeah. and the rave scene will change because um, you know in terms of their makeup at the moment we've got lots of disparate sort of scenes. Is that going to change? Is that going to stay the same? What, what what's your feeling? Um, I think I think I think the rays will stay the same uh, in terms of uh, uh, the formats and the concepts and stuff. Um, uh, the, the restrictions are going to are going to pay dividends. We're going to see what that's going to do. Uh, but I think once they can find a way to control and let people in, I think it's just going to get set off very quickly. Uh, but as soon as, as soon as they lifted those restrictions a few weeks ago, mate, events have been selling out left, right, and yeah, centre. Of course, um, and you're currently People are desperate. You're currently working on a new track with uh, with General Levy. Um, has lockdown had any impact on the sound or style of music that's being created? Because it must be incredibly difficult. Force and Styles, again, they mentioned this in the interview that we did. Darren Styles was saying, I, I, I can't release the same sort of music that, that I was playing 18 months ago, you know, whenever this pandemic first started, because you have to have moved on. But I don't know what's going to work on the dance floor. So it's quite a complex uh, and difficult thing. What do you think that the the, the the impact, if any, will be on the music itself? I think, listen, that's his perspective and he's entitled to say that. And he's got a point in what he's saying. You can, you can understand. But at the same time, listen, there's so much content. People are making music. They're just making music. They're not thinking about that. They're just making music. What will work will work. What won't work will be binned. Simple. That's what they're going to do. It's trial and error. They've got no no, no other solution. What can they do? Oh, how, ex studio, how, exci how exciting is that? Listen, it's just exciting that we're going to be able to move again and do stuff. And people have stayed proactive. They've had to for mental health, for your physical health, for your sanity. You know, to stay creative. Look, us artists, we're creative souls, man. We need to be doing our thing and just whatever. And it's just an artist. An artist doesn't normally go out and paint a picture and go, right, I'm doing this. Uh, you know, they just go out and just get it out there and release it. And uh, and, and that's, I think, what the majority of people are doing. And it's going to be trial and error. They'll be trying stuff. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It sounds works. great. I mean, it sounds it's great. great. It sounds it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Um, you've also got a book out soon. It's called Make Some Noise. It's on pre-sale now if people want to buy it. What can people expect from it? Um, yeah, so basically uh, I was toying with the idea for a long time. And a lot of people said to me, listen, man, you've got you've got a great story. You should do one. And then I just thought of personal legacy for me. Uh, and I thought it'd be great to have one. And then being the man I am, I thought this would be great to open up opportunities. It's an ongoing. I don't think I've finished, mate. I don't think I've finished in my life. I think uh, I've got my Horizon project, which I'm doing. I went back to university in 2017. I graduated with a 2-1 in criminology. I was going to use it. But I didn't. But I'm glad I did it and fed my brain because it was good to do after so many years. Um, uh, I've got my Horizon project with Stu and Matt. Uh, Matt's GP. Stu's an engineer, but they're both engineers. 
uh, and we, we love the Horizon projects. We've got tracks that were released on Molly Collins's label, Right Good Records. You can go and check her site out uh, for Horizon. We've got uh, a release on Ram, which is great for us. You know, the the the, the infamous Ram, uh, and we're not going to stop there. And we've just done a track with General Levy, which is it's called Heavyweight, and it is heavyweight. It's absolutely serious. I think it's his best thing he's done. I th really, I think it's the, the only sort of symbolic tune he's done since Incredible. I think after that, we've never really heard of him. He's a great performer and he's seasoned and he's huge and he plays all over the world. But I think this track's going to bring him back to prominence. It's, it's on fire. So we've got that and that's a really big thing for us. And I've got, yes, yeah, so we've done the book and I've teamed up with a great writer, Dan. Dan's amazing. Dan worked for FHM as a journalist and, and loaded. Uh, he's done some work for NME. Uh, and then he's he's um, a film um, a, a film critic, um, and when all the, the Hollywood stars and film stars, whether you're British or or foreign, come to England, Dan he's he's got a YouTube page. He sat there with The Rock and Kevin Hart and John Boyega and Samuel L. Jackson and all these people from Sylvester Stallone, all these people. And and now so, what's, so what's he doing with the book? What is it going to be? What's what can we expect? It's, it's basically a perspective of the rave scene. And it's, we're talking about the rave scene as a whole, but from my, from my eyes, from my journey, from my experiences, and we talk about everything, not just me. And there's going to be a lot of people in there. So we've got, we're, I'm very blessed, we've got Andy C, uh, we've got Carl Cox, we've got Slipmap, uh, we've got Dougal, we've got, you know, we've got Pro, uh, Dave Prattley from Helter Skelter, um, Storm's going to be in there, you know, Sharky. We've got loads of people all from across the board who are uh, who are in the book. Um, X-Man, um, Nutcracker. It's, the list is endless the, of the people who are contributing towards my life and my journey. And I just thought it'd be great for my legacy. It'd be great for my family, for my kids, for when they're older. It'd be great for... And just to tell the story for it to be out there. Um, we said at the beginning, when you said that thing, he's not deserving of being here. I disagree. I've put my life and soul into this industry, I've thrown myself at it, and I've been passionate about it. I've had my situations along the way, like anybody does in life, but I would never, ever change it for the world. I am honoured and I am blessed to have been able to do this and to still do this. I love it, and uh, uh, and I'll, I'll, that's all I can say. And my book is going to be a testament to everything that I've done. If we, ha if you had your time again, is there anything you would change or that you regret in terms of anything at all? Perhaps you know some of the behaviours that you displayed, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that we've 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 talked about in quite length in this in this podcast. Hundred percent. Listen, time is a beautiful thing in hindsight. If we could go back and repair certain things, uh, yes, in a heartbeat. Hundred percent. Made mistakes. If I could correct them, yes, I would. Have I learned a lot of things? Yes, I have. Do I still make mistakes and get a bit sensitive? Yes, I do. Am I progressing and growing? Yes, I am. Am I being honest? Yes, I am. I'm, you know, and that's and that's where we're at. If I could do, change a lot of things, yes, I would. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Listen, I'm an easygoing guy. Loads of people have been passing away. Life is short, man, and we have to learn and grow, and we have to learn to change and to be different with people and to look after people and to deal with situations and some of the things I couldn't deal with. I couldn't deal with those situations. I wasn't programmed to, to deal with those things and, and I didn't get the right guidance or support and just, yeah, just, just didn't adapt well in certain places. But that's life for you. We live and we learn and we grow and then we die. So, you know, we just got to get on with it and I try and get on with as many people as I can along the way now and just to be happy so i just want to be happy hence having those little rules in the health skeletal group we just don't need it i don't want to be reading that type of stuff and and, and a lot of people don't there's twenty-five thousand people in that group the majority of them don't want to be living and seeing that type of stuff and that's my sentiment it's just about let's get on as best as we can because it's, it's like god said and Allah says it in the scriptures it's hard to be human I'll leave you there. Well, it seems like a good place to leave it. Thank you for your time today, for your honesty. I think that if 
I don't know that anybody will go away from this with a slightly different opinion of you, whether it changes their opinion of you or changes their view of you. I I'm, I wouldn't go, be so bold as to say that, but, it, but I don't think anyone would have watched this and go away with the exact same persona that they probably approached it with. And, and if, and if that's, if that's something positive that's come out of it, then then that's great. So thank you for your time. I wish you well with your book. It's called Make Some Noise. It's on pre-sale now. Uh, and that's MC Majika for you. Thanks, mate. Thank you very much, mate. It was an honour to be here. Bless you. And big up to all the Ravers. Thank you very much. I love every single one of you. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the support. And may it continue. Peace and love. Well, that's it for another episode of Raw, and if you like what you've heard, we'd love you to get involved. All of us here at Raw HQ buzz hard of how much you, the Raw crew, enjoy our work, and your generous cash donations have been a huge help since our launch. But we're now a team of five, putting in combined 80 hours a week for no wages. We've got loads of plans to go further, expand our team and offer, but that does mean that our costs are also increasing. So we could really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing as you've done since we started. So please do check out our website initially. It's rawuk.com for interesting extra content and to get your hands on our first ever range of raw merchandise. That's rawuk.com. We've also launched a new membership scheme where you can donate to create more interesting and fun content on an ongoing basis and you'll even get stuff in return. So head to patreon.com forward slash rawukpods. That's patreon.com forward slash rawukpods to see what's on offer. You can also join our YouTube membership, which is the same. Or if you're not bothered about membership, but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or repeat donation, head to our website and click the PayPal link. That website URL, one more time, rawuk.com. Respect to you for your support and for getting to the end of this episode. Please keep supporting us and help ensure there's more quality content coming your way on a regular basis. Oi, oi. Raw. Raw. Raw.